I'm Nick Spencer, and you're listening to the fourth series of Reading Our Times, the podcast that introduces you to the books and the ideas that are shaping the world today. Listen with us, and we'll explore the rise of pseudoscience, the ethics of spying, the future of liberalism, the trustworthiness of science, the meaning of the soul, the origins of religion, and the reason why we're in this whole global mess in the first place. According to a Gallup survey in March 1981, 58% of people in Britain believed in the existence of the soul. According to another survey, this time by Morrie, nearly 30 years later, 57% of people did. Whatever else has happened to religious belief over the last 40 years, it doesn't seem to have affected the soul. But what, if anything, that means is far from straightforward. Is this soul a thing, a kind of non-material entity that's implanted into our body? Or is it just a way of talking, a hangover of religious vocabulary used when we mean simply ourself or our identity? Or is that itself a false dichotomy, disguising the fact that there is an altogether more credible and meaningful third way when it comes to soul talk? John Cottingham is Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at the University of Reading and Professor of Philosophy of Religion at Roehampton University. He's the author of over 30 books, and the most recent of these is entitled In Search of the Soul, a philosophical essay. John, welcome to Reading Our Times. Thank you. Now, language is very important in this whole discussion, and I want us to begin by talking a bit about one of the most common linguistic mistakes that we often make when talking about the soul, and that's the tendency to talk about whether we have a soul. And that little word have assumes a great deal, doesn't it? Tell us why it might be misleading to talk about us having a soul. Yes, I think language, as Wittgenstein said, can often be misleading. And soul, of course, is a noun, rather like mind. So we perhaps already come to it thinking it must refer to a thing. And then we think, well, it can't be a physical thing, so maybe it's a sort of immaterial thing. And already we're down the road to a lot of potential confusions, I think. If you compare it with the mind, I hope I have a mind, you have a mind, but I don't think we'd think of it as something we have, at least not as a separate object or thing that we have. Rather, to say someone has a mind expresses the fact that they have certain mental capacities for thinking, feeling, sensing, and so on. I think it's very like that with the soul. To attribute a soul to someone, to say, if you like, they have a soul, is to say that they have various capacities, attributes, which enable them to to do certain things Mm. and to think in certain ways. Yes. It strikes me that we do that all the time in language. I was thinking when reading the book that we talk about having a sense of humour or having a moral compass. And yet no one in their right minds would imagine that you could identify a thing inside us, which is a sense of humour or a moral compass. Mm. And yet somehow we do when it comes to souls, don't we? We kind of naturally assume there is a thing there and it's a soul. Yes. 
we're led down the road to asking what is the soul and then we're already looking for some kind of substance or entity and not all nouns refer to entities i think that's the kind of grammatical problem and as soon as we start to think in terms of attributes then i think we've got a more plausible account I'm not sure. suggesting we engage in finger-pointing here, but do we have Plato to blame for this? <laughs> do we have Plato to blame for this idea that the soul, as he says at one point, is pure at departing and carries no taint of the body? Mm. I think Plato is to blame for what's often called dualism, the view that the body and the soul are two totally separate, distinct entities. And Plato has various arguments, I think perhaps not very good ones, for suggesting that the part of us he calls the soul could survive the death of the body and so could go off into some kind of separate realm. In fact, not all that he says is misleading, I think. He often uses the soul to refer to the rational part of us, the reasoning thinking part of us, the intellect, for example. And it's not easy to think of that as physical. If we think of our thoughts, our reflections, our rational activities, they don't, as it were, come in the guise of the physical. They appear to be rather different. Of course, nowadays, we're very conscious that those capacities are linked to the brain and its activities. But of course, in Plato's day, Nothing about that was known. Yes. So that perhaps paves the way for him thinking of the soul as something perhaps slightly mysterious, or at least something immaterial. Yes, yes. The other major philosopher who is often associated with this position is René Descartes. You are a particular expert on Descartes. I think you would probably say we're being a bit unfair to Descartes if we just lay at his door this idea solely that the soul is this thing. He's very well known for that view, but his views were subtler, weren't they? Yes, I think that's right. He certainly, I think, did set things up for this sharp division between mind and body, what's often called Cartesian dualism, after the adjective Cartesian from the Latin version of his name. And he does say, this me, that is to say the soul by which I am what I am, is entirely distinct from the body and could exist without it. So he is, I think, rightly regarded as the father of dualism, mind-soul dualism, two separate things. But actually, if you look at more detail about what he says about human beings, He says that as human beings, we're an intimate intermingling of mind and body. And he thinks there are properties which belong to us, not as this kind of ghostly separate soul, but in virtue of our embodied human nature. Mm. He particularly mentions sensations and emotions. If you think about sensations like hunger or thirst, or an emotion like excitement or pleasure or pain or depression. All these things, if we think about them, are very much bound up with our bodily existence. Mm. And Descartes allows for that when he talks about the union of soul and body. 
he does downplay the significance of the body, doesn't he? In as far as if animals don't have a soul, he sees them as effectively automata, as kind of responsive creatures, but without any genuine feeling as to what they're responding to. I think that's right. Going back to the framework he inherited from the past, the soul was used pretty widely. Going back to Aristotle, people talked about a nutritive soul responsible for nutrition, locomotive soul for moving around, a sensible soul, sensitive soul responsible for seeing and hearing and so on. And Descartes thought, well, all this can be eliminated. We can just give a physical account of all those functions in terms of the way the organs operate. And he separated out conscious thought, thinking and willing as these special properties of the soul, as we were talking a moment ago. In the case of animals, since he reasoned that they don't have intellect or will in the same way that humans do, Therefore, they just have these other functions that can be explained in physical terms. Therefore, they're just machines. And he famously talked about the bet machine, uh, the beast machine, mm. rather sinister term. He does sometimes talk as if animals can have sensations, for example, hunger or fear when the sheep one of his examples, runs away from a wolf. But I think he does on the whole think that these, in the animal case, can be explained in terms of physiological mechanisms. Mm. So if that's one tradition or school of thought, the other descends ultimately from Plato's pupil Aristotle. Talk us through Aristotle's understanding of the soul and how it differs from that of his master. Yes, well, in Plato, as we were saying, the soul is the separate substance which is not affected by the decay or death of the body. Aristotle's view is much more body-friendly, if you like, and he has the view that, roughly, the attributes that we describe in terms of having a soul are present in us because of the way the bodily organs are configured. So the soul is a kind of organizational principle. So there's a very close relation between function and physical structure in Aristotle. So, for example, the eye is organized, configured, in a way that allows the function of seeing. So his general line is sometimes called hylomorphism, rather... Mm portentous Greek term, which really just means that the matter is organized to facilitate the relevant functions. You quote Wittgenstein at one point who wrote, the human body is the best picture of the human soul, which you say is quite an Aristotelian view of the soul, isn't it? Yes, I think it is. If we're looking for the soul, we shouldn't look elsewhere to some mysterious other world we shouldn't look to an immaterial domain, but we should look at the whole human being. I think there's something attractively holistic about Aristotle's approach in general. You think of the whole living, walking, breathing, organic human being, and that's how you can understand what it is 
to think and feel and reflect. Let me ask a short and simple question, which invariably has a long and messy answer. How does the Christian conception of the soul fit into this story? Right, that's a pretty complicated (laughs) question. (laughs) And I'm not a theologian, so I wouldn't venture to lay down the law about what the Christian does or should believe. But generally reckoned to be the main authority on the Christian worldview is Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century. And he really took a bit from Plato and a bit from Aristotle. He's certainly sympathetic to the idea that most of the mental functions require us to understand how the body is organized. But he also believes in the afterlife. So you might say, well, what survives into the next world? Is this a pure, immaterial soul? Well, Thomas Aquinas's view is not quite that. He does believe in a soul, but he thinks it's not a complete substance. So I think in his conception of the afterlife, the soul is, as it were, awaiting reunion with the body and the resurrection mm-hmm. of the body. Mm. Now, how Christians view the afterlife is, of course, probably enormous variety. But notice that the creed, the Apostles' Creed, doesn't say, I believe in the survival of a platonic soul or a Cartesian ghost. It says, I believe in the resurrection of the body. So Mm. the view seems to be that a full existence requires not just an immaterial substance, but something more, something something embodied, that we may not be able to understand fully what that body amounts to in the next world. Yes, I think that's an extremely interesting point. As you say, there's going to be a variety of views out there. I'd put money that if you were to take a popular poll on people's understanding of the Christian consumption of the soul, a lot of people would veer towards the Platonic. But as you rightly emphasise there, there's a very strong material element throughout all the scriptures and obviously in the emphasis of the resurrection of the body. And you quote in the book at one point one of Paul's letters to the Corinthians when he's talking about the resurrection and he talks about how the body is sown a natural body and it's raised a spiritual body. And that phrase, a spiritual body, is incredibly interesting, isn't it? Because a lot of people would dichotomise those two and say, well, there's the spirit and there's the body. But Paul's emphasis there is that the resurrection body is a spiritual body where the two are kind of unified. Yes. It seems that in Paul, what he calls the natural body, the Greek term we might translate the biological body, we know that's going to decay and eventually die for each of us. And the element's going to be returned to the earth in some form or another. But Paul seems to believe that a new kind of glorious body will be created. So going back to Thomas Aquinas, Aquinas has this saying, anima mea non est ego. That's to say, my soul is not the me. It's not me. The me is the whole human, if you like. And the whole human, well, for my existence to be continued, if you believe that's possible, there would have to be some kind of bodily component. And as you as you just said, for Paul, it's a spiritual body, but it's still a body. Mm. 
And I suppose the model for that is the resurrection of Christ, where it seems to be very important in those stories that he appears in bodily form to the mm. disciples. He's not a ghost. He's not an immaterial spirit. He's a raised body. Mm. Yes, the gospel writers do seem to be at pains to emphasise this. It's almost as if it's very easy for us to imagine some kind of ghostly post-mortem existence, but yeah. this isn't what's going on here. This is something a lot tougher and, and more material. Yes, I should say that in the book, In Search of the Soul, I don't talk much about the resurrection or the afterlife because, in a way, that's outside the scope of philosophy. Mm. But I do, on the whole, argue for a view of our human nature that requires us to accept our embodied nature, our mm. embodied status as, as human creatures, and not to try and analyse consciousness as some strange, ghostly, immaterial property. I want to put my own cards on the table at this point and say that I'm unapologetically committed to the kind of understanding of the soul that you've been talking about there, that the soul is naturally emergent from human material complexity. It seems to me that that's also a view that you yourself would be inclined to. Yes, I think I don't talk about emergence in the book. And I think if we just look at things in physical terms, it's quite hard to understand how properties like consciousness do, in fact, emerge from the way the nervous system is configured. Mm. But it's not in principle, I think, impossible to understand. When we think of consciousness, a lot of philosophers nowadays talk about the hard problem mm. of consciousness, meaning if you just look at the brain and all the neurons firing, well, that's fine, but you can't really just see from that what it's like to be aware, to be aware of the taste of coffee or the smell mm. of a rose. And so there are notorious problems about seeing exactly how that emergence you referred to mm. can be explained. Nonetheless, I think I would agree with you that in principle, our complicated human faculties for thought, for feeling, for emotion, all must in some way be present in us in virtue of the way our brains and nervous systems are configured. But do I detect then you would be a bit nervous about being as direct in saying you consider the soul to be an emergent property of our complexity in the same way as consciousness, there might not be a link there? Well, this brings us on to the question of why use the word soul at all. If we were just talking about mental properties, then I think fairly comfortable in saying our mental properties, our ability to calculate or to reflect on the meaning of a sentence or whatever these mental properties are em emerge from or are a function of occur in virtue of the brain activity, the electrochemical activity of the brain. When it comes to soul, I think it has a rather special connotation. It refers not just to all of our, that's to say in our modern usage, it refers not just to all of any old mental activity, but if you look at novels, at poems, at songs, at literature of all kinds, 
the word soul often crops up to refer to rather special activities. And a lot of the focus in the book In Search of the Soul is to try and look at those activities and see why they have a special importance for the moral and spiritual meaning of our lives. There's a line, I think it's in Philosophical Investigations, again, going back to Wittgenstein, when he's talking about the meaning of language residing in its usage. And it strikes me this is particularly relevant in this particular discussion. Because as you say, one might say, oh, we talk about souls because it's the afterglow of Christendom, effectively. We've spoken about souls for several hundred thousand years and we still talk about it now. But I kind of think that's not true. And I think that we are the kind of creature with the kind of organism that almost can't help but talk about souls or to reach for a kind of language that goes beyond talk of the self or consciousness or mental states. We need a word that represents, as you say, our innermost, deepest, moral, cognitive, existential hopes and aspirations. And then we just talk about souls for that reason. I think that's quite right. Of course, we use the word self, but a self could just be referred to just a set of characteristics, characteristics that define someone's personality. But when people use words like soul, and they also use words like spiritual, it's interesting that a lot of people talk about spiritual experiences, whether or not they're religious. I think words like spiritual and words like the soul alert us to certain very powerful transformative experiences in human life. And you can see this if you do a survey of where the word soul crops up in poetry, for example, or in novels. Powerful transformative experiences like the experience of love for another human being, like being transported by the wonder of nature and the beauties of nature and where we feel elevated, lifted up to another plane or also great works of art where we feel something stirred within us which takes us beyond the mundane, ordinary world of utilitarian commerce or making a living, whatever it may be. So the word soul, I think, is much stronger than just self or mind. It refers not just to what we are, but to what we might be to pick up your mm. word aspirations. It, it alerts us to our aspirations to become something mm. better than mm. we always are in our ordinary lives. And become something better folds in the absolutely important moral dimension into this and how our talk of souls or the way we talk about souls cannot but be linked to our sense that there are, well, you talk about, moral philosophers talk about strong normativity, the sense that there are strong moral imperatives to which we should respond. I think that's right. And this word normative, which philosophers are fond of using, is not, I think, all that helpful. I'm not <laughs> sure it has much meaning in ordinary discourse. But what they mean by it is, the sense of authoritative demands, demands upon us which we often ignore, sadly, but which we nonetheless feel the pull of. We feel, for example, that we are called, in some sense, to be compassionate and to avoid 
cruelty. We feel that we are required not to waste our lives, but to devote them to something of moral importance. And you can't really derive these authoritative, normative demands just from a biological account of our nature. They somehow transcend the mundane demands of our ordinary existence and call us forward to reach for something better and higher. You don't have to express that in religious terms. And in fact, there are many moral philosophers who are opposed or to or, or certainly agnostic about religion, but who still want to say, yes, there are these irreducible normative requirements mm. that we often fall short of, but nonetheless, mm. we can see their power, their authority. And the language of soul is often connected with that sense. There's a famous statement, if God didn't exist, humans would have to invent him. Well, whatever you think about that, it seems to me that if the language of the soul didn't exist, we'd have to invent it because we are the kind of creatures that reach for that kind of discourse. I think that's right. I mean, one way of expressing that is that human beings have a yearning to transcend themselves or a yearning for the transcendent. What that amounts to, I think, is that to be human is to be the sort of being that is never content with a fixed set of parameters. So even if all the conditions for our food and shelter and warmth and comfort were secured, we would still reach forward for something more. There's a kind of open-ended longing in the human spirit or in the human soul. Here again, those words have a, a sort of significance because they point us towards this transcendent dimension, I think. There's that longing in the human spirit to reach forward, not to rest content, a longing for something better. And without that, we would be less than human. Mm. We would just be reduced to the status of clever animals if we just <laughs> lived on a purely instrumental, practical plane and never had these open-ended longings for something better. Even if we are constitutionally incapable of stopping talking about the soul, whether we are religious or secular, it's still fair to say, and you do talk about this towards the end of the book, we talk about the soul in different ways. You say at one point in the modern vision, the soul cannot rely on divine assistance from the outside, but must instead constitute itself by choosing actions that represent its most authentic self-expression. And you quote Kant a few pages later saying, I, man, am this divine being myself. Now, that's one way of talking about the soul, the self-constituted soul. It's very different from the way we talk about souls in a theistic tradition, whereby our souls, or our soulishness, if you like, mm -hmm. is found in and sustained by and, and satisfied by an external, personal, objective framework or relationship within which we exist. So we might talk about souls a lot of the time, but we do still talk about them in very different ways, don't we? We do. And that Kantian vision you referred to has certainly appealed to a lot of contemporary philosophers who somehow think that we can constitute or construct ethics just from our own resources by using our reason and by the will. Now, that seems to me not quite to do justice to the way it feels, because when we do respond to these moral imperatives we've been talking about, 
I don't think we have a sense that they're internally generated by our reason or by our will. Rather, we have the sense of, if you like, something not ourselves. We have a sense not of creating, but of responding, whether we like it or not. Here's an analogy. When we contemplate a mathematical truth, like 2 plus 2 equals 4, we don't have a sense that we've made that true or that we've constituted it. Rather, we have a sense that we, as long as we focus on it, we have to say, yes, it's true. It demands our assent, as it were. Mm. The light of reason illuminates it, but as long as we contemplate it, we cannot but say, yes, 2 plus 2 is 4, it's true. And yeah. I would want to say that in a similar way, the moral imperatives command our assent. We can turn away from them, and sadly humans often do, but as long as we focus on them, we cannot but acknowledge their power and their authority. Let me conclude with a, another slightly fun tongue-in-cheek question. There's um, quite a bit of poetry in the book, as one would hope, really. And I was reminded of a phrase that occurs somewhere in, in McGilchrist's recent magnificent two-volume The Matter With Things, in which he says something like, only poetry could ultimately express truth. It's along those lines. I'm wondering whether you could tell me what pieces of art music, literature that you've encountered that are right, most conducive right. to understanding and nourishing the idea of the soul we've been talking about? Well, let me first say that I'm a great fan of Ian McGilchrist's work. He's a friend of mine, and we've discussed many of these issues. And one thing I admire about the book is the way he brings in not just a whole host of scientific data and results, but also he draws on literature and art and all manner of other human activities to articulate his views. If I had to plump for someone who I think encapsulates the sorts of views I find very attractive, I'd probably have to go for William Wordsworth. He talks, for example, of the serene and blessed mood when mundane considerations fall away and we feel lifted up. We feel elevated by a mm. sense of a deeper meaning in things. And um, there's much in, for example, in the prelude in Wordsworth and the lines written above Tintin Abbey, both of which I quote from, where I think we do have a true sense of what words like soul mean, not mm. anything spooky or immaterial, but rather sensibilities that are incredibly precious in human mm. life, and which do give us a sense of meaning and value, and really ultimately of goodness. Mm. The cheerful faith, says Wordsworth, that all that we behold is full of blessing. And that sense of goodness and blessing in nature is, I think, extremely important, even though we may not be fully able to analyse it intellectually. Mm. The book is called In Search of the Soul, a philosophical essay. John Cottingham, thank you very much indeed for speaking to Reading Our Times. Thanks so much, Nick. I really enjoyed our talk. Next week, I'll be speaking to Hamish McRae about his book, The World in 2050. I think that is a very good example of the way that when the West, for all its self-indulgent and incoherence and disorganisation, when it's suddenly really, really threatened, it pulls together 
in an extraordinary way. You've been listening to Reading Our Times from the think tank Theos. It's produced by Phil Bodger. Our team includes Lizzie Harvey, Daniel Turner and Elizabeth Oldfield. Special thanks to Nina Humphreys, who composed our theme tune and all the music. You can subscribe to Reading Our Times on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can also find us on our website, theosthinktank.co.uk, where you can find all the episodes from this series and previous series and leave feedback. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. It'll help other people find the podcast.